spend more time Where rules are not allowed I wanna find myself Lost in the crowd I wanna travel past the boundaries So far they disappear Out here just the two of us I make friends with my fear Welcome to another episode of Leading With Your Gut. I'm your host, Jenna Renee Shellman. Leading With Your Gut is a podcast series featuring daring individuals from around the world who share stories and topics about embracing their fears and having the courage to make intuitive gut decisions. The purpose of this podcast is to empower and inspire you to follow your intuition, trust in yourself, and have the strength to own your story. You will hear from courageous people who defy societal expectations combat their inner negative thoughts, and use their gut to help guide them through life. The guests on this podcast are not perfect and neither am I. Leading with your gut embraces authenticity, vulnerability, and the audacity to be truly seen. I think it's wise to use research, data, and your network or past experiences to help drive a major decision. However, it's important to recognize when analysis paralysis takes over and disables your ability to have the confidence to make authentic decisions. By maintaining a strong connection with your intuition, you can only gain an advantage yourself. After the show, please visit my website, leadingwithyourgut.com, to learn about my coaching and consulting business. Leading With Your Gut Coaching and Consulting is smart coaching for go-getters who want to boost their confidence, pivot from burnout, and live a purpose-driven life, all while honing into their intuition. Right now, when you visit my website, you can receive my free 13-minute step-by-step video guide on how to use the SMART method to achieve your goals. Connect and follow Jenna Renee Shellman and Leading With Your Gut on all social media platforms. If you're an Apple Podcast listener, please rate and write a review of Leading With Your Gut when the episode is over. I want to give a special shout out to Shaw Wild, spelled C-H-A space W-I-L-D-E. She is the musician who wrote and produced the intro and outro song delivered to Earth on a Rainbow. You can find Shaw Wild's music on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. All right, let's get started. Stay tuned for an interactive and creative lineup of powerful stories on Leading With Your Gut. Comedy was like being tall. That's what J.L. Covan thought when he was making his friends laugh back in school. During those days, JL never took comedy seriously. You may recognize JL Covan's name from his ever so perfect Trump impersonation that has blown up the internet. His first big hit, the Easter Sunday video, went viral back in March and brought in a whopping 7 million views on Twitter and 2.4 million on YouTube. However, JL has more talent than nailing a few good impersonations. He's also a stand up comedian, a writer, and a podcast host. JL is a half Haitian, six foot seven comedian from New York with a law degree from Georgetown. For 16 years, JL balanced working as a lawyer and as a comedian. He has been given many promising opportunities in comedy, even appearing on late night television. However, his career never grew to the level of success that he had hoped for. For 16 years, JL has been in the middle of the arena, waiting for his comedy career to take off with his head mostly planted in the dirt. I am beyond excited to have JL Covan as my guest on Leading With Your Gut for this week's double feature. 
I reached out to JL after watching his content on YouTube and then subscribing to his podcasts, Making Podcasts Great Again and Righteous Brick. I quickly realized that JL was talented, smart, and vulnerable and able to finesse politics and social issues into his humor so well. I became intrigued. I embraced my fear and I had the courage to send a friendly message on Twitter. What I learned about JL is that he has passion, drive, and humility to push through his failures. The first time we connected, he told me that he was overwhelmed with the exponential growth that his comedy career has taken in the last few weeks. In just a short amount of time, everything that he has been working towards is all here now. Ironically, it took COVID-19 to bring JL the chance to be truly seen. In part one and part two, JL talks a lot about leading with his gut during his comedy career, having the courage to stay in it part-time and the courage to take a step back, moving to Jersey and securing a full-time job as a lawyer. Being brave and listening to your gut not only means to embrace your fear, but it means to follow your inner voice and to stay true to who you are, even if it means taking a step in another direction. We're not meant to suffer in this life. We are meant to enjoy it. And sometimes we have to make choices to keep the bills paid. JL shares his story of courage, despair, and hope. In part one, JL and I discuss his background, struggles as a comedian, and his gut instinct to continue following his dream. In part two, we talk about Trump, and Trump actually stops by to answer a couple of pressing questions that I have. After you're done listening, please go buy JL's new album, Fireside Craps, The Deuce, rated number one on iTunes. I purchased it and I vow that you won't be disappointed. Links to JL's social media accounts and podcast shows are in the show notes. I really hope you enjoy part one and part two. And JL, thank you for speaking from your heart and sharing your story with me and my audience. Cheers to May 2020. This is JL Covan starting off the episode by making me laugh. (laughs) I want to talk a little bit about Trump a little bit later, but I'm actually very curious about your background and your interest in politics and your interest Mm -hmm. in law and how you discovered that you were also funny and that you wanted to be a comedian. So can you kind of share with my audience a little bit about your background? Sure. I can get pretty deep on this. I grew up in a somewhat violent home. And I say that not as a sort of like I was traumatized or a victim. Some psychologists might say I was traumatized. I view it from sort of more old school lens where, hey, sometimes your parents hit you. Life gets stressful. It's not going to be my path. As I've joked with people, I say when you have a blue collar mom born in 1944 and a Haitian father born in 1931, it's not really the timeout style of parenting that you're going to get. A recent joke I had was, you know, when your father's home country had death squads when he was growing up, the parenting style will be a little more blunt. So I think what happened was I was a violent kid, not like as a little kid, I'm talking six, seven years old, not where you can do real damage. But I then got sent to a child psychologist. That was sort of my school. I went to a very ritzy private school and I was a very good student. And I don't think as someone who was a very good student, who was a biracial kid in the early mid 80s, I think there was a lot that they wanted to keep me in the school, but I had to change. So it was about going to a child psychologist when I was in fourth grade. 
And I went for a couple of years. And then around fifth grade, I just started doing impressions of people and making fun of people. Now, some of it was probably hurtful, but words can hurt, but it's a good first step to use words instead of fists. So at that point, I only made this connection like a few years ago, to be honest, (laughs) where going to therapy, I only made this connection a few years ago where I was like, oh, wait, if I look at the timeline and my mom has always said, oh, I think she doesn't want to be blamed sort of, but I think she was like, well, you might've just been getting older and maturing out of it. And that could be, but also it could be that some things had to be undone and things that had to be looked at in a different way. So sixth grade is when I start doing impressions of teachers, of students, of actors, And I'm sure they were very bad. They were good to my friends, but I'm sure they were very high-pitched versions of whatever person I was trying to imitate. And that's where funny started. And that became, so very relatively young, I think it became sort of a way to maybe sometimes be aggressive, maybe sometimes make people like me. A whole range of things. Funny became kind of currency in terms of gaining friends. Like, I wasn't the most popular kid in my high school, but by senior year, I was voted to speak at graduation simply because people knew it would be funny. It wasn't like he's our best friend. It was just like, no, that he'll give a funny speech. And I played basketball in college at Williams College. And I remember I wasn't that well liked by my teammates my freshman year until we all went to a trip to Virginia. And I was doing impressions and making everybody laugh. And all of a sudden that turned so many people's minds around me. And it taught me in a very sort of visceral way, like, hey, humor can make people like you. I'm not the type of person who's like, ooh, this person doesn't like me. I know I'll put on a show. It's not like that. It's more organic. It's like the natural way I communicate is to make a reference, do an impression, be funny. I try not to be somebody who's always on. But when you're with a group of guys drinking, humor is a natural sort of thing. You don't have to like, hey, guys, enough with the serious chit chat. I have an act to do. No, you can do it in conversation. So every phase of my life, I feel like humor even though I learned the lessons that sometimes, you know, sometimes you can be entertaining and it doesn't mean people are your friends. Sometimes it just means they find you funny. But law school was sort of the biggest test of this. I was never interested in doing stand-up comedy. I liked being funny to my friends. I liked doing impressions. I never had the idea of being a comedian, getting on stage. I didn't have that need. And maybe I'm six, seven. I was a college athlete. I'm sort of a naturally funny person. So like, I never felt like I never needed something for attention. I always sort of stand out literally and figuratively. But I was really depressed in law school. And I was struggling, like academically, it was the first semester of my second year of law school. And I was in a long distance relationship with my college girlfriend. And I was living on my own. I've had a roommate my first year, and now I was living on my own. I liked my place, but it was just struggling academically. It was the first time I'd really felt like, oh, I'm getting my ass kicked by some of these classes. And I felt lonely, and I was sleeping. I would sleep through classes. So it had to have been depression. You know, I wasn't diagnosed, but you were just like, my girlfriend who was in medical school basically wanted me to see a shrink. And I was like, I'm fine. So she sent a Catholic priest from Georgetown, I'm Catholic, <laughs> to come talk to me. Yeah. And it was through those talks, it was like somebody to talk to. And she had explained to him like he's Catholic, I think he would be open to you if he doesn't want to go see a doctor or or whatever. And I decided to go to an open mic the summer after my second year of law school, I'd gone to some local shows, bar shows, bar comedy shows. And I was like, Oh, that's fun. And that got into my head. Like, what if I tried this? Maybe it'd be a good hobby. Yeah. And from then on, it was just my mood, my grades improved. Not that third year law school grades really matter all that much, but it meant something to me personally, like, oh, I finally kicked some ass in some classes. 
not just middle of the pack or bottom of the class in like tough classes, but I was doing well, better late than never. But then I was like, comedy had become something where I was like, I kind of want to pursue this almost like a dual track. You know, like I've gotten one paid gig in my first year of comedy. I'm not ready to abandon a professional career. So I went to the DA's office at a law school in the Bronx, but I kept doing every night I was going to open mics. And that's one of the things I've learned in retrospect. And then I was like, every night I got up to go to the gym. I went to work. I then went to the city to do an open mic or two, repeat. And I had energy and I was so enthusiastic about the everything, new job, pursuing comedy, trying to be a success at comedy. And so, I mean, I know your answer was just about how did I start, but I guess that's how funny started for me. And then that's how doing comedy, not just as a coping mechanism or as a social skill, how I got onto the, could I do this? Could I try this as a career? Or really at least put a ton of effort into being good at it. Thank you for sharing that, by the way. So when you decided that you wanted to go to law school, you knew that you were funny, you knew that you just wanted to do this just for fun. In your head, were you like, I'm so passionate about being a lawyer. This is what I'm gonna do. Like, were you gung-ho with that in mind? Like, did you think, you know, I'm so driven and this is what I wanna do, I wanna be a lawyer and just the comedy stuff is on the back end. I'm just a funny guy. Oh, comedy was like being tall. It was like, I've always been the funniest of my friends. That's it. Like, I need to do something with this. It was good for making friends and for entertaining women. That's yeah, like, to it. be blunt, that's, it's just a social skill. It was nothing more than that. I liked sitting around my friends and making them laugh. And in a weird way, that's still kind of the purest kind of humor. You're doing it for the joy of people around you. A psychologist could probably say, well, you're getting something. You like seeing people laugh, so you're getting something out of it. Yes, but no further motive than that. I went to law school because I got into some good law schools. And I felt like it was like, well, money's good. And you go to a good law school, people will be impressed. I wasn't like, oh, no, I have to go to law school. It was more like, law school. That's pretty legit. And that was it, you know? So, (laughs) okay. Yeah. There was no deep, I want to be Atticus Finch kind of thing going on. I had to ask too, because you did say what your second year of law school, you were feeling somewhat depressed, right? And I've heard from other people being in law school or medical school, or honestly, just any program first or second year, sometimes they can become depressed. And a lot of people realize that this is not what they want to do right? But they're like expected to do it or they're like, it makes really good money and it's a prestigious job, but there's something else I'm passionate about. I don't know if you ever reflected on that or if you think that was part of it. Oh, I definitely did. And the thing is, first year is often the most challenging year in law school. That's the most competitive year. But for me, I was living with a friend and we actually stopped living together and we're still very good friends. And I think he was a couple years older than me. We were teammates in college. He took two years off to be a paralegal. And then we were both first years at Georgetown together. And we got along great, but not as roommates. And he sort of said, being almost the older brother surrogate, maybe we shouldn't live together next year. And for like a second, you're like, hey, man, that's like, even though you know, yeah, probably not. And we're really good friends. And that might not have been the case if you try to force a friendship into a situation where it doesn't vibe as well. But I think even though I didn't do great at all my first year of law school, I had a friend, you know, I was in the dorm, the student dorm. So you just had a social environment that was like a shared experience. So even if you're like, oh, I got a C plus in this class, that sucks. You're still like, okay, I guess four of us are going to the, you know, the bar down the block. So who cares? And I felt very isolated um, my second year. And then when you're struggling, when the year is not supposed to be as tough and like the courses you're taking are not ones you like, but you thought you sort of had to, like, I'll take corporations and tax and all these like very standard. And I was like, I hate these classes. I'm not doing well at them. And I had moot court. I'd made a moot court team. 
And that was like adding on a whole other like difficult class just in terms of the workload. So I wanted to quit after literally at the midway point, like at the end of first semester, I wanted to quit law school. And I actually said this in my father's eulogy a couple of years ago. He was a very sort of stern man. I mean, he loved his kids, but he was a fairly stern guy. And he was very proud. He wasn't a lawyer, but his father had been a lawyer in Haiti. And my dad's grandfather, my great grandfather had been on the Supreme Court of Haiti. So it was this very like proud lineage to him that I was going to law school. And it really struck me when I think he could tell how upset I was. I wasn't like weeping or anything, but I was just really un, like just not having a good time. Like, and I think he could tell it. And my mom was always a little more intuitive like that, but it was sort of struck me as it was a real moment for me as regards to my dad when he was just like, well, if you don't want to do it, you know, you should come home. Like, don't do it if it's really not something. And it seemed like he was always the guy you show up with a B plus, like many immigrant parents. It's like, he knew I was an A student. So it was like, if not an A showed up, it would be like, Ugh, you know, Ugh, what is this? Right, right. But it was really, it dawned on me like that he was just like, he could tell his son was hurting. I expected kind of, it is tough, but you must do it. And he was totally not like that when it came to that. And that almost made me sort of go, all right, maybe I'll, we'll see what happens second semester. And then that's when my ex-girlfriend sent a priest over like the exorcist to heal me the law school demons. And I discovered comedy. And 16 years later, I'm finally sort of succeeding at it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's Absolutely. been an, an incredible, it's almost like I took the year and a half of law school that was difficult and depressing and said, what if I stretch that okay. into a 15 year journey yeah. for comedy? Right, right, right. <laughs> so let's talk about your gut here, because obviously your gut or something inside of you is telling you that the comedy thing might work out, right? And you're obviously passionate about it. You're good at it. You're talented. You're going every single night. Now you're getting your approval from your dad to kind of like not really care about law school. Did you feel like an intuition or did you feel some type of faith or something like calling you towards comedy? I can remember the time I thought about it, which was I went to this, I think it all stemmed from needing to be more social. Like I was really retreating into my studio apartment and being like, I'll just watch DVDs and eat pizzeria uno. I'll go to class next week. It was really like, I look back on it. And when you're in it, you're just kind of like, yeah, I'm kind of bummed. But you look back and it's like, geez, never like self-harm or anything like that, unless you count pizzeria uno as self-harm. <laughs> but it was still like, not me. It was a very unrecognizable sort of period based on who I had been before and who I am now. And I went with a friend to, I got a flyer from a guy who lived in my building and it was uh, like, oh, we're doing a free comedy show at the pub down the street. And I was like, I texted my buddy in law school and said, you want to go to this? just grab a beer, go to this? And he was like, sure. And I think that was me just making an effort. I was mentally aware of like, I got to do something positive. I got to like have fun, like do something that's just like, yeah, take a night off. Like, and I'm not, I don't know. Sometimes I don't even think I do it. Like even now, I feel like sometimes Netflix becomes like a chore. I'm like, I got to watch it. It's like Netflix <laughs> is supposed to be fun. And I think a lot of people do this. You're like, oh my God, I have eight shows on my Netflix queue. I better tick these off the list. And it's mm -hmm. like, you can't tell me Netflix doesn't know that that is the psychology they're going for because right, they right. don't care if you're happy. They care if you're watching. But I went to that show and I really had a good time. I know two of the comics, three of them, but one of them is not doing comedy anymore. I actually know two of the comics. They're still comedians now in LA who were on that show. And they were like funny third year comics, you know, young guys who were like, but we're pretty funny. And I had such a good time. And that just made me sort of curious. 
I hate it when somebody comes up to me at a show and you go, my friends tell me I should do comedy, but, 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 and I'm like, uh, gross. Get out. Like <laughs> in terms of, I came at it, not from a, I'm funny. I better do this, but more from a, well, I'm funny, but I know this is a different thing, but I'm curious if I could do it. It wasn't like I'd be good. It was like, I might suck. Cause I had at least the knowledge that it's different. It's getting up in front of strangers is different than making your friends laugh. But it gave me something. I remember I was writing stuff that second semester because I wanted to do well in my classes. I was like, I'm going to start this summer. Like I'm going to start trying. But it gave me this thing. Ooh, almost like summer camp. But for me, it was like, ooh, this summer, I'm going to try comedy. I don't know if I felt like a gut, like, ooh, this is calling me. It was more like, oh, that might be nice. And it was just something to look forward to. It gave me something to be optimistic about. Did it scare you also? Were you terrified? Oh, yes. And I think that probably helped me coming at it from a place of humility, as pretentious as that can sound. But it was because I knew I was funny to my friends. I knew I could make people laugh in conversation, but I recognized this is different. This is a different thing. So I wrote out a set for two weeks and like practiced it in my bathroom because I said, if they boo me, if I go to this open mic and people are like, this sucks or nobody laughs, I will have these words memorized so I can just get through the jokes. Yeah. Like nerves won't stop me from finishing the jokes, which is not the way you're really supposed to do comedy. It's not a script. It's supposed to have a bit of an organic feel to it. But I got laughs at the first open mic I did. I'm sure I was not good relative to what I would consider good. But, you know, I remember one joke was about a cab. And I swear, I saw this cab in DC called Arrive Alive. And it was actually my girlfriend at the time who just pointed out the name. And I just got like one of the jokes I said was like, I saw a cab company and their name was Arrive Alive, which is setting the bar very low, isn't it? And it's like, really, it's just a premise, but it got a laugh. And I probably said, I think I said something stupid, like, sir, we know you're paralyzed, but technically we fulfilled, you know, our, our end of the bargain. You are here alive. So that'll be $10. You know, like something stupid, but they laughed. They were a good audience. It was a jazz club in DC and they had like an open mic night on Mondays. And that was the first place I went to. And they were nice. And I think that also helped because had they been mean or hated me or if I had really sucked, even for a first timer, I might have been like, uh, I guess this isn't for me. It's like childhood development. Like your first set like is like the womb. And it's like, if the audience is metaphorically smoking and drinking while you're trying to do stand up, even though you want them literally drinking, if they're metaphorically poisoning your early development, you might be like, oh, this isn't for me. But Mm -hmm. they were nice. And then the open mic scene in DC was very, very kind of welcoming. I think less cutthroat than if I had started in New York, where everybody already thinks they're a big star, even if they suck. I think the attitude of like that non-New York, LA type city is a good, it's a good place. It was good to start there because it gave me positive feelings, even when I was probably not good. <laughs> well, obviously you were a little bit good because I laughed at two of those jokes, right? And it got <laughs> you somewhere. I'm curious. That may be the 16 year comedian, like polishing up <laughs> right, right, right. what the joke was. <laughs> <laughs> You've practiced these jokes before, huh? For 16 right. years. I'm curious as to know, so I love seeing comedians and I love watching people on stage. I like presentations. I like to present too. I used to be a teacher. I used to, you know, present in front of people in my old corporate job as well. And a lot of people say, you know, how do you get on stage? How do you get in front of people? How do you become so vulnerable in front of people? You could say something wrong. You could fuck up. People could hate you. 
you know, if it's a joke, right, people won't like it. Like when you're on stage, regardless of people are vibing with you or not, how are you feeling? Do you feel like you're in your runner's high? Do you feel like you're terrified? Do you feel like you're like, what is that moment for you like? This could be a long answer if that's okay. It's okay. Go Because I've it. had different phases in my career. Like my first few years doing stand-up, I'd say five years, I was basically the same person who was making their friends laugh and enjoying that. I did a lot of impressions. I did very like kind of pleasant. Most of my humor was very pleasant, not particularly vulnerable. And as I said in our chat before we recorded this like a week ago, I always want to be funny first. I want funny to be the agenda. And if feelings or thoughts or powerful moments emerge, they have to come from comedy, not from I'm getting on here and I'm going to tell you what's what. And hopefully you laugh or even just clap. No, it's got to be funny. But those first five years, I loved it. I loved getting on stage. Like I had no problem sleeping five hours a night. I mean, I was young too, but it was like, and I'm talking a disciplined five hours, not like I'm out partying. It was like, I get up, I go to the gym, I go to my office and then I go to two open mics. I get home at like, I'm traveling from lower Manhattan to like back up to the North Bronx at 1145 at night on a Tuesday and then repeat because it was like every part of my day had something for me to be energized about. And in 2008, I got out of a very, very bad relationship, one that I wish I had not been in. And some things happened in that relationship that still bother me to this day. And I use stand up once again, comedy being and I know that I hate this sounding like a cliche where it's like comedy healed me. I don't think comedy healed me. Comedy was my way of venting and getting out from childhood to adulthood. I'm going to take anger, sadness, etc. And I'm going to put it to use. I'm going to get it out through comedy. And for about six months leading up to my second album, all I did on stage was talk about that relationship. And it was a good thing I wasn't famous because if they'd heard me saying some of the things I was saying, they would have been like, cancel culture would have come early for me. It was a process of like, how can I make these jokes about a painful relationship and sort of experiences that haven't left me into something that everybody can laugh at? And when I saw like women laughing at open mics and at shows, then I knew I had something because it wasn't just a guy getting up there and going, can I use foul language? Go for it. Yeah, this fucking bitch, like, fuck her. <laughs> like, that was the feeling. But I had really worked to make these very deeply personal things into something that not only was funny to like angry dudes, that's the easy part, but women were laughing, nice people were laughing, there was a vulnerability, but I had turned this, you know, and from that moment on, comedy for me, and there were no more boundaries. And I'm not, as the term goes, an edgelord. That's usually when somebody just says, I'm going to pick like racial slur and build like a bit around that to prove that I can like say these things and be funny. I never reverse engineer jokes. The joke comes and I craft it to what's funniest, but I say what I want to say. And that led to like this excellent period of creative work, even though I wasn't getting the financial success. Like my albums from that point on, were a mix. There were some impressions, there was some light stuff, but there were also always these deeply mined things that I would get into. And I know you asked about stage, that's sort of like the longer, that's how this process has worked. But after several years, the buzz from that of being creative, of making new things, of getting on stage and taking risks, not risks because I'm a risk taker, but like, I know some people might not like this material, but I believe in it. You know, I never do something to shock someone, but I'm not stupid. I know if something I think is funny could be something that is shocking. And that became the challenge. And that became kind of a high to get on stage and be like, okay, you know what you're doing, just do it. But after many years of that, of plateauing at sort of this, okay, half my income is from comedy, but I'm unable to break through. 
you feel like a gerbil or a hamster on a, a little wheel in the kit. You're like, okay, I'm really good at this, but it's going nowhere now. That's when I started to feel the buzz wear off. I can tell you when I first started, if I had a good show, I'm talking like 2005, 2006, the rest of the week, I felt good. And that's how you know it's like a drug. And then I remember a show I did in 20, oh, I want to say like 2013. I remember killing on stage, like really killing. And I walked off the stage. And by the time I'd gotten to the bottom of the stairs, the good feeling was gone. I didn't feel bad. But I was like, whoa, like a drug, you get a tolerance for it. So like it used to be, oh my God, you can't talk to me. I had a good show on Sunday and it's Friday and I'm still the man to the point where you're 10 times, 20 times better an artist and with much more to say. But by the time you get off those stairs, you're like, and that's that. I'm going to Shake Shack to get a shake and go home. Like there was just no buzz. So then the creative outlet gave me, like I said, coming up with different things, exploring yourself, sharing yourself, exploring other things in deeper ways and trying to find the funny or trying to express funny things in certain ways became sort of the high wasn't there, but you start to feel a pride, like the way somebody who builds something looks at it. They may not be like, I'm the man, but there's a sense of accomplishment. So that high became a sense of accomplishment with like the things I was creating. But after many years of those things not succeeding the way I hoped, that also went away to the point where you're going, well, am I accomplishing anything? Because part of what I want to accomplish is a career. And I'm not accomplishing the biggest thing that I'd like to accomplish. And then as the joke goes, a pandemic hit and all of a sudden I feel very accomplished and like things might happen. And I'm sorry, I felt like giving that context of both, not just the high, but like how I've changed as a approach. So if you've been doing this now for 16 years and you said in 2005, you were getting your highs, right? You were killing yes. it. You were feeling good. Is that the moment when you were like, I think I'm going to be a comedian full time. This is my career. The law thing's going to go on the back burner pretty soon, eventually. Like, were you confident at that moment? I was confident that that's what I wanted, Got but it. I have a very sort of blue collar. Uh, my mom is very hardcore work, have insurance at all times. Uh-huh. Yeah. So <laughs> That was never what really changed it was when I made, you know, my fourth year of stand up. I made my debut on late night television. I did the late, late show and I crushed it. It really went well. And that was the moment where I think not only was I convinced it was going to happen for me, it wasn't the, oh, I got a late night credit. It was, I killed it on late night TV. That's the difference. You can have a late night credit, but when you have the evidence that you were really good, and that's not, I would do 10 times that set now, but for that, level for those years, there was a perfect set and a perfect sort of introductory set of who you are as a comedian and who you are as a person. It convinced my parents, you know, who obviously saw me on TV. That's a big deal. Not everybody gets on TV, especially doing what they want to do. And that I think validated it to them and probably gave me confidence to be like, well, when the time comes, it's going to be time for me to do this full time. And now, you know, it's not a total pipe dream. You know, it would be like if you want to be an actor and you book like a three episode arc on This Is Us. Yeah, you haven't made enough to like live forever on that. But like you do have a serious credit and a serious major breakthrough for that dream career. And then Uh, I ended up seeing somebody during that time and getting engaged to that person and taking a job at a law firm. And I guess once I had had psychologically, I think we'd say once I had my mother's approval, I needed a woman in my life to harshly disapprove 
of my life choices. We're having a breakthrough right now, which is, I think, exactly what I did. I was like, I always needed to have some sort of conflict in my life. So I was like, wait, I'm in great shape. Both careers are going well. I'm 28 years old. Oh my God, my life is so perfect. Let's add some real problem. Let's throw a problem in here because what do you do when your life is just smooth sailing? You've got to throw a, exactly. a, some rocky waters in there or how are you going to live without some deep conflict causing you pain? <laughs> so curious about this. So with her disapproval, did you start treading backwards? Were you thinking like, maybe I'm not going to do this? Maybe I'm not going to yes. be a comedian? Yes. Maybe I should, you know, stick with the traditional path of being a lawyer, getting two no, I was like, kids she's, in the burbs. I was like, oh, she has a point. I went to very good schools and working for the government, even though it's very flexible and the hours aren't killer. She's right. I should be making more money. And then when you get engaged to somebody, you're like, yeah, well, you can rationalize it by saying, well, yes, family has to come first. So that is a valid point that I should be in a better position, which was just so weird to be hearing that, you know, within a month of getting your first TV credit that you should be slowing down the comedy. Like I look back and go, what a giant wuss, what a coward. Some of that is because I think I was in such a good place that I had room for trouble because I'd grown up with like constant conflict around me. So like when everything was great, I had this like psychological space where I could fit some conflict and feel comfortable. And I always tell people that relationship was one where I felt very unhappy, but very comfortable. Do you know what I mean? And those are two different things. I was like, ah, yeah, this is like a familiar space. I'm in a space that feels familiar. So there's a comfort to familiarity but it was not happiness. And even though I liked the people that I worked with at the firm and I made more money and was able to save up money that would last me a few years as I made my first venture into full-time comedy that failed. Yeah. I would have never left the DA's office. I just would have continued on the track I was on yeah. and I guess been happy. And who wants that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is such an interesting story. So most people that are on my show, I classify them as like, they're like go-getters. They're people who are on this traditional path, right? Whether it's in a relationship or a career, and they feel like this is the way that they should go, right? And if you yep. kind of take the themes out of people's stories too, it's almost as if once they see the light at the end of the tunnel, or once they see success, they like sometimes flip the other way. And I've done this too, where sometimes we are more afraid of succeeding than we are of failing, right? Like yes. for 16 years, like I sound like such a stalker, by the way, you guys, but I've seen some of your stand-up. You're funny. No, no, that's You're the talented. whole point. That's you... the whole point of having that out there. I want as many stalkers. If the stalking <laughs> ends on Twitter right. and YouTube, stalk away. Okay. <laughs> I've seen your stuff, right? Because I saw the Trump thing and I was like, okay, this guy's good. He's funny. What else does he have? So I've seen some of your stuff on YouTube. I've heard your shows and I'm like, this guy is funny. My first thought and the first thing that I said to you when we talked a couple of weeks ago is, where have you been? Right. Where have you been, Jail, for 16 years? So through the six years, I'm just so curious. It's almost as if you had like a poll of here's the route I should go, right? Get engaged, you know, be a lawyer, make everybody happy. And then I'm passionate. I love comedy. It was like, it almost just seems like it was just this pull and tug. Do you feel like that too? I do because, but comedy, what I've always said to people is comedy always gave me enough to believe in it, okay. but not enough for it to come true. Yeah. Oh, a TV credit. Well, then I guess that means I'm on the right path. And then your manager for four months gets fired and then they dump you from, you know, I never had a signed agreement, but they dump you and you go, well, that's okay. Cause I know I'm good. You get out on the road, you sell some albums. 
your savings starts to dip. Every month you're taking out more than you're putting in. And then you one day realize I have to get a job in the next two weeks. I will have no money. And that's, you know, four years later, you're like, uh, whoa, this did not work out. And then you do part-time legal work. And that, I think, what's so funny about this and the timing of this is I did part-time legal work from early 2014 until mid-2019. And that was always, and my mom was always saying to me, she kind of, I think, comedy wore out its welcome for her. You know, she gave it a shot. Not that she had to give it a shot, but in terms of, and obviously I have a close relationship with my mother, not a Norman Bates kind of thing, but uh, <laughs> she's a big influence on me. You know, she's somebody who's incredibly hardworking and has sacrificed a lot for me. So I, you know, any shrink will tell you, you don't owe your parents anything, but like, I'm human. You feel like you owe something. Mm -hmm whether it's even just the respect to consider their ideas for you, you owe that in my world. But I think it wore out. Like she saw I was getting frustrated. She saw that I was like not as healthy as I used to be. That it was like I still was good and I was still putting out good things, but it wasn't happening. It was making me angry. But I couldn't go full-time. So for years, she was like, maybe you just get her a full-time job again. You know, take care of that. And you can do it on the side. You can write on the side. Who knows what'll happen? But like, this isn't working. And I agreed with her intellectually, but I guess this is my gut. I was like, I gotta keep it open. I know I'm good. I know I'm really good. I cannot take a full-time job yet. I just can't do it. I need to have that flexibility because maybe one day I'll be doing a gig with a great headliner and he'll see me and say, let me talk to my manager. Let me talk to this or somebody will see me in an audience, or they'll see a video that I made, anything. There's all these possibilities. And I've been doing the podcast, video, stand-up, trying to get everything I can out there. And it wasn't happening. And then last year, I wasn't looking for a job. But I, one fell into my lap. And it was good pay, great benefits. And I was just like, <sighs> I gotta take it. Like, I wasn't going to quit. Obviously, I didn't quit. I did a few stand-up gigs on the road, but not as many. That One of the reasons was I was not getting as many bookings. The last year had really dried up for me. And I said, what am I delaying for? I'm not even getting the things that I need flexibility for. So if I'm not getting the gigs, it's kind of stupid to basically not double your salary and get benefits. For like, what? For like a lightning bolt to shoot out of the sky? That's what it felt like because it wasn't like I was getting the work anymore. So I took the job and I sort of said, okay, I'm going to write a script on the weekends. I'm going to look for some gigs. I still have vacation time that I can use. They said I could use it if I wanted to do some remote work or if I had some gigs, that wouldn't be a problem. So there was still that I left open a little space for it, but I was no longer making it the priority. I just said, I can't do it anymore. This isn't a I'm giving up. It's like I'm being realistic. And by the way, that also takes courage. It takes courage to follow your heart and follow your guts, do what you want to do. But it also takes so much courage to say to yourself, I need some security right now. I need to just like, you know, have a situation where things are routine and they are predictable, right? Because you need to take care of yourself. So that also takes a lot of courage. But I think my mindset with it really was, the thing is, financially, I moved to a place where like my budget was based on what I was making before. So I was still in a place where I was like, okay. I still could live this lifestyle. I could still be part-time lawyer and like I'll be living month to month, but like I can do it. But the job came and I said, these aren't happening that often. I'm not getting offered these kind of jobs. I just think I have to take it. And it sort of proved my mom right in a weird way because she said, if you work full time, that's when something will happen. And I think she meant it. I don't think she was trying to like convince me so that I do what she thinks. I think she really thought there's no rhyme or reason to that. 
she's like, I see these unfunny people on TV. And I go, that's all bullshit. So to her, I don't think she was saying, I'll tell you what you want to hear. I'll try to convince you. I think she really meant it might happen. You have talent. It might. But this whole, I've got to focus entirely on it and make it the priority. That's also not working. So why do that? If there's this random chance element to it, at least make some money, put something better on your resume in case it really fails. In the words of Donald Trump, we'll see what happens. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. <laughs> right, right. So now, yeah, like, so now I want to talk about this of, you know, okay, so you go back to, you know, being a lawyer full time when you moved to Jersey, right? From New York? Yes. Moved to Jersey. Okay, you're doing gigs on the side. And then all of a sudden, coronavirus hits. Yeah. Right? It's messing up everybody in the world. And yeah. you have your two podcasts, right, going. And then you put out Easter Sunday video. Now, before yeah. you put that out, you had what, like a couple thousand followers maybe on Twitter? I had, yeah, yeah, no, I had 4,200 followers okay. roughly on Twitter. Okay. I had uh, 2,800 subscribers on YouTube. My podcasts were averaging about 600 downloads, 650 okay. downloads a week. Okay. And I was just content because I was still, yeah. it felt like, you know what, I'm still doing something creative. I'm still exercising those muscles in case something crazy happens. It was no longer, I got to be ready for when that agent calls. It was more like, I got to be ready. I got to keep my skills sharp in case a miracle happened. I hate to say it like that, but that's literally, it was like, it's probably not happening, but if you're in the game, you have a chance. Yeah. So I'm going to stay in the game because right. I still know that I want to do that, even if I don't think it's going to happen. Thank you for listening to another episode of Leading With Your Gut. That concludes part one with J.L. Covan. Please download part two to hear J.L.'s famous Trump impersonation. Oh.